The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Turn with me, if you would, to uh, Mark chapter 1, and we're going to start in verse 29 together, okay? Uh, we are continuing in our series focusing on the miracles of Jesus and what they teach us about our God. Uh, last week, we studied together the first miracle that Jesus performed, uh, and that's when he turned water into wine at a wedding in Cana. Um, there is some often overlooked truth and beauty in that story, and uh, we would encourage you to check out the audio on our podcast or website that is up and available uh, if you didn't get a chance to hear it last week. Um, this week, we are going to dig into the account of Jesus healing Peter's mother-in-law. Uh, and so let's just approach God's word together and uh, see what it is he has for us, okay? So we're in uh, Mark, and that's chapter 1, and we're going to start in verse 29, okay? And immediately after they came out of the synagogue, they came in to the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was lying sick with a fever, and immediately they spoke to Jesus about her. And he came to her and raised her up, taking her by the hand, and the fever left her, and she waited on them. Uh, praise God for his word. Uh, the first thing I want to let everyone know is that we are going to have a special time of prayer at the end of the service for all of you who would not have asked Jesus to heal your mother-in-law. We believe you need prayer for that, and uh, we love you, and we're going to get you delivered from whatever would cause that. Um, I'm, I'm kidding, but kind of. Um, I, so just, I feel like I have a good opportunity here to, to say something that is appropriate. Um, I only know of this unfortunate tendency for there to be tension uh, between people and their mother-in-laws uh, from other people's experience, because um, my wife's mother is one of the most precious saints God ever made, and I love her, and she loves me, and I'm super grateful for her. So I give honor to Connie Baker today, uh, and I'm thankful that she's a good mother-in-law. Um, so... Moving forward and seeing what it is God has for us here, um, let's remember a couple things about miracles before we dive too deep here, okay? First of all, um, working off Wayne Grudem's definition of a miracle in systematic theology, which I told you guys last week, there's a lot of different definitions of miracles, some lacking a full, robust thought of, of all that should be said about it. Uh, and so we're working from this definition. A miracle is a less common kind of God's activity in which he arouses people's awe and wonder and bears witness to himself. Uh, another important thing to remember about miracles is that, is that miracles in Scripture are acts of God that proclaim his sovereign power over creation as well as his commitment to the good of his people. Uh, our main purpose in studying the miracles of Jesus is to understand more about the character and the nature of our God. Because Jesus is both fully man and fully God, we know that what he teaches and what he does gives us an exact picture of how God would think and act in a given situation. There are a few beautiful things that we see in this regard in the account of this miracle. So as far as what we can learn from the way Jesus handles things about God, here's a few things we see contained in this. First of all, I think we can see that God's motives are perfectly pure. I think that should go without saying. I think most of us probably believe that at an intellectual level, but I think sometimes for some of us there is a tendency to struggle with believing 
whether God is just as perfect as Scripture declares. But I believe we see here evidence that God's motives are perfectly pure. Uh, Jesus enters this humble house, and he encounters a sick woman there. Uh, he, he doesn't have the disciples carry her outside and gather a big crowd uh, before he heals her. He doesn't need or seek fanfare in order to address her suffering. Jesus cares about the needs of just one person and doesn't care if anybody else knows of his power or kindness in that particular instance. So I believe we can see from this evidence of the purity of God's motives and all that he does. The second thing I think we can see is that God is ever about his mission. He's always on mission. Uh, if you, verse 29 tells us, it says, that, and immediately they came out of the synagogue. If you go just above that in Mark, it describes what was happening in the synagogue. Uh, Jesus had just left there. He had just got done casting out a demon, uh, exertion of power and probably some effort. And he had also taught the people, it says, as one having authority. They were really impressed because Jesus came along teaching as one that had authority. And so uh, that was shaking people up. But uh, the point there is that teaching and preaching might just look like talking, um, but anyone who has done it knows it is real and exhausting work. And so they were likely ducking into this house of Peter's to rest and recharge before they continued in ministry. Um, and instead of resting, Jesus immediately encounters another need, right? He just casts out the demon in the guy. He's teaching tons of people in the synagogue. He's pouring out of himself. He's like, all right, guys, let's go sit down for a minute. Walks in there. Boom, there's another need right there staring at him. What does he do? How does he address it? He doesn't complain. He doesn't say he'll get to it later, right? He moves immediately to extend mercy to this sick woman. And we, so I think in that we see evidence that uh, God is ever about his mission. Jesus was always on point uh, in caring about the needs of others, which I think is both informative and exemplary for us. Uh, the third thing I think we can see from uh, the way Jesus handles this, is that God is sovereign and his power is without compare. Uh, let me read you something from a, <clears throat> uh, a commentator and a theologian uh, by the name of Barclay. Peter's mother-in-law was suffering from what the Talmud called a burning fever. It was and still is very prevalent in that particular part of Galilee. The Talmud actually lays down the methods of dealing with it. A knife made wholly of iron was tied to a braid of hair, then to a thorn bush. Then a certain magical formula was pronounced, and thus the cure was supposed to be achieved. Jesus completely disregarded all the paraphernalia of popular magic, and with a gesture and a word of unique authority and power, he healed the woman. What Jesus does here and how he does it reveals several things about the character and nature of God. Um, I believe, you know, like I said, first of all, that God's motives are pure, God is ever about his mission, and thirdly, that God is sovereign and his power is without compare, right? The people in that day, they had a way to try to go about dealing with this common fever or illness, and it had to do with tying a knife to a bush with some hair and saying some weird stuff. Obviously, I don't think that really worked, but Jesus came and demonstrated that, you know, the efforts you've been putting in to try to solve this problem, though they are insufficient, let me show you what happens when the power of God's applied to it. And you notice it wasn't, uh, he didn't say any incantations. He didn't wave his hands a bunch of times. It says he reached down and touched her hand, and he raised her up, and he healed her. And I think to, the, to, to a people that were dealing with problems the way that was described before, that's, that's a pretty big distinction between how you're trying to solve problems and, and when the power of God comes on the scene, right? And so I think that's powerful. Speaks to the sovereignty 
of God and how his power is different than other powers they had encountered. Um, and so I, I believe we see several things here about the character and nature of God. I believe there are also insights into the ways of our Lord from the example of the other prominent character in this miracle account, and that would be Peter's mother-in-law. Um, I would call your attention to a couple things. It is likely that this mother was a servant of God, uh, first of all, because she was apparently humble, helpful, and peaceful enough to live in Peter's house and not only be tolerated, but truly loved and appreciated, right? I know for some of you, you're instantly imagining having your mother-in-law live in your house with you. This, I'm giving evidence this lady probably was, was a servant of God, okay? So she, she probably, at least was sweet, okay? So we can get that from it. Um, and and well, why do I think she was loved and appreciated? Well, it says here that when Jesus stepped in, uh, that immediately they spoke to Jesus about her. And so the sons, the, uh, Peter and um, the others here, they, they had concern for this woman. They did love and care for her, and they really wanted Jesus to address this issue for her. Um, you know, I, I do know guys that if their mother-in-law was sick, might not tell Jesus <laughs> and might just wait. <laughs> so uh, they're terrible and need to get saved. But anyways, um, th- that's not the only piece of evidence. Um, the other thing I would, I would give is, as evidence to her character is her immediate response after Jesus heals her. I think this is a clue to whether or not she was a follower of God. Let's just um, look at verse 31. He came to her, raised her up, taking her by the hand, and the fever left her, and she waited on them. Right? I mean, that's just like a good mama, isn't it? I mean, this lady was burning with fever. Jesus touches her hand. What is the first thing she does? She jumps up and starts waiting on everybody, right? I, I can almost hear her in my mind's eye, pop, pop up out of the bed from a, from a burning fever and looking around like, you know, oh my goodness, look at all of your dirty feet. Let me get you some water. We're going to wash those feet up. And Peter, did you offer your friends a snack? I can't, these guys are wasting away. Here, here's some bread. Here's some cheese. I'm, I'm going to make cakes. Just, you all sit down. Let me hand, you know what I mean? Just, just, a, just a, a beautiful example of a mama, man. She just got out of a burning fever. Jesus touches her hand and what does she do? She doesn't check to make sure it's really stick in or whatever, she's straight into service, which I think uh, that servant's heart and that beautiful desire to serve um, really reflects the heart of God, and, and I think is further evidence she probably was a follower of God. Um, I, I think it's fair for you, I, I realize there, that I don't have a confession of faith from her in, in this story, and so it's, it's fair for us to ask if her immediate response really does... Uh, reflect the heart of God? Am I stretching there? Um, Is her service something that really reflects the heart of God, or is it just something that reflects what a person who follows God should do? And I would just submit to you these verses as evidence that this servant heart of this mama that was healed uh, does, in fact, reflect the heart of God. Let me read you Matthew 20, verse 28. This is out of the mouth of King Jesus himself. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many, right? One of the big premises that we're working off of is that Jesus is the perfect reflection of the Father. And so Jesus said, he, second member of the Trinity, came down, took on flesh, not to be served. I mean, what do you expect of a king in typical circumstances? When a king shows up, what's he expecting? To be served. What did Jesus say? I didn't come to be served. I came to serve. And that's, what, that's part of what makes the reality of our God stand apart from all other false religions. 
you can't even make this up. Who would imagine a God who comes to serve those he, who he created? That's not some, that just doesn't follow the normal narrative, right? But that is the God that we serve. That is the God who came to earth, took on flesh, and died in our place for our sins. And so, um, though God is sovereign king over everything, he still has a desire in him to serve. I, I have a hard time even squaring that. I don't know if it's as big a deal for you, but to me it's like, but, but you're the king. What are you doing serving? Like, you're, you're the guy, right? You're the one in charge of everything. You should be serving nobody. And yet, that's the posture he takes. Um, what a good God. It's, it's one of those things, right? It's, that's kind of a mystery for me. How do those go together? Maybe it's easier for you to figure out. I don't know. It, just, it, it, it leads me to worship, not doubt. I'll tell you that much. Um, I'm thankful that our God is that way. Uh, I would also say, so I, I do believe that this, this incredible act of service Right after receiving a miracle, she jumps to and is, is looking to wait on everybody, to serve everybody else. I don't think just the attributes of this mama in particular uh, reflect the character and nature of God. I, the Bible includes many examples of this special kind of love and care that godly mothers have as the best way to describe part of his divine character. Now, some of your, some of your radar just went off and it should have to some degree, and I'm going to qualify what I'm saying. Before I give you these examples, we need to make sure we all understand what is not being said. It's very important. The fact that the Bible compares the love and care of God to that of a good mom does not mean we are confused about how God has chosen to reveal himself to us, okay? The primary way God has described himself in his word is as a father and king, not a mother and queen, okay? It's very important. Jesus, the second member of the Trinitarian Godhead, took on flesh in order to rescue us from sin and death, and he came as a man, okay? God has revealed himself primarily in the use of uh, male terminology, male language, things of that nature. Though God has primarily revealed himself using male examples and terminology, we should not think he is gendered in the same way as we are. Uh, the Bible is clear that God is spirit. John 4, 24. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Okay? Though this is true, that God is not gendered in the way we are, we must follow the pattern given, the pattern given to us in the scriptures for how God refers to himself. And thus we should refer to him as father and not as mother. It matters to him. He told us, this is the way I want you to approach me. This is the way I want you to address me. He's God, he gets to dictate that, okay? So that's very important. None of what I'm saying, um, you know, should be taken as an endorsement of seeing God as the divine feminine. That's, that's not what we're talking about, okay? God is not mother, he is father, according to him, which he's in charge. Uh, however, the character of the mother who received this healing in this story does echo much of the character attributes that God reveals about himself, using the example of a good and godly mother. This happens throughout Scripture. Um, now, in case you're still not sure if it's safe to learn more about who God is through the example of good mamas, let me show you that Jesus was perfectly comfortable with thinking and speaking this way. Because some of you, and, and I appreciate if you are still nervous about it, at least you even understand what I'm talking about and you care about, this is the way the Bible represents God. I don't want to get outside of that. And we should care about that. But let me just read this. This is from Jesus himself. This is Luke 13. This is verses 34 through 35. This is Jesus speaking. 
O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not have it. Okay? That's the Lord of glory himself. Very comfortable with describing the emotion and the way he felt about the people of Jerusalem. He couldn't... He, He's, he's wanting to give an example. What's an example? How, how am I feeling? He uses the example of a mother hen gathering up her brood of chicks underneath her wings, okay? Jesus is comfortable with understanding he can use that example to express the emotional range and what it is he's feeling and what it is he's thinking without violating the fact that obviously he is a man and that God the Father has been revealed as Father, Okay? We can also look at God's creation of mankind to understand that the full range of his good and loving character cannot be contained within the male gender only. God created men and women both in his image with equal dignity, value, and strength, but he created them with different and distinct roles, partially because that reflects more fully, not perfectly, but more fully, the range and beauty and depth of his good character. Let me qualify what I just said. Don't, I don't want you to take any of this just on my word. And, and I, I promise, all of this premise is necessary to make sure what the rest of what I'm going to do in the sermon doesn't lead you to wrong thinking about what I'm saying. Okay, so we got to understand these things to understand why it's even okay to talk this way. Let me read you this from Genesis 1, verse 27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Okay? So as man, so man, part of what is being said here in man is, is mankind. But let me just, is, is man, male, are males created in God's image? Yes. Are females created in God's image? Yes. Thus they are equal in dignity, value, worth, right? They're equal in strength. Their strengths are different. It's very obvious from the rest of what the scriptures tell us. God created male and female in a complementary way. They have different gift sets, uh, different emphasis. Uh, they even perceive the world largely uh, differently. And, and I realize there's, I'm not being stereotypical in what I'm saying because I'm not giving you examples, but the reality is, for the most part, men and women are different. Uh, and those, those that would argue that, I just, I, I don't know. Maybe they haven't been outside of a cave their whole life. I'm not sure, because it's, it's pretty obvious um, in, in a lot of different ways. So um, God did create them both in his image, and, and part of why he did that was because man alone, I mean the male alone, could not fully reflect the broad beauty of all of his character and nature. And so part of what we can learn, part of what we can learn about God by looking at the way a woman, and specifically, I'm going to talk about the way a mother deals with things. And uh, it's not a stretch, because I've got verses, so just hang with me if you're nervous. Um, there is an ancient Jewish saying that goes something to the effect of this. God could not be everywhere, so he made mothers. I realize that's kind of cute, and it's, that's more sentimental than it is theologically accurate, but it does hold some truth, because a loving mother is one of God's most tender images in humanity. I believe that's true. I'm going to say it again so you understand what I'm saying. I believe that a loving mother is one of God's most tender images in all of humanity. So what I want to do now is I want to show you some places that God chose to reveal himself 
uh, and more about himself through the example of a good mother, okay? And so if you're a note taker, you're going to take some notes, have to take some notes, and if not, just listen. Uh, I didn't want to make the folks in the back have to try to scroll through. I'm going to hit a bunch of verses here. So the first thing I'm going to reference, and you can check these out later, uh, if you want, is Isaiah 66, verse 13. Here's what it says, Isaiah 66, 13. As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you, and you will be comforted in Jerusalem. As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. So what, what, what is being said here through the prophet Isaiah? That, that something of the peace and the beauty and the comfort that God is willing to come and to pour out upon his people, it can be likened to and or compared to the comfort of a mother. And I realize that... Um, you know, for some folks, to varying degrees, they will struggle to understand this. There's many people that struggle to relate to God as a father because of less than perfect examples from their father. I realize that's true also for some of us with mothers, but God is using the, the picture and the idea of a good godly mother and the way they tend to deal with their children. And so, um, typically, a good godly mother, this is true in our house, if, if one of the kids falls down or they're not feeling well or they're sick, um, I, I will, I'd say nine out of ten, if not ten out of ten times, the, the name coming out of their mouth when they yell for somebody is, is going to be mom and not dad, okay? So when they're looking for just comfort, right, they love dad, dad's fun, dad does goofy stuff and all that, yay, you know, we like to hang out with dad because we know it's going to be a riot, but... If, I'm, if I skin my knee or I'm not feeling good, I need comfort. Typically, they're hollering out for mom. Um, and that's not true in every situation, in everybody's case. However, it is for us, and it helps me understand at least what's going on here, what God is talking about. He's trying to, he's trying to comfort his people, and it's a beautiful picture, if you'll let it be, that God, with the same tenderness and the same compassion with which a loving mother comforts a child that is, that is struggling for whatever the reason is, God is willing and able to comfort us in that same way. And so he's wanting us to understand, what it, I mean, what an invitation, what, a, what, a, what, what a, a beautiful thing for God to say to us. Um, and, and I think a lot of what God is doing a lot of the time, in, in many of the examples he uses to help us relate to him, is... It's almost like when you got real little children and, and you're trying to explain something to them or you're just talking to them. You know, you can't, you can't sit down and talk about real complex stuff. You can't, you can't give long lists of instructions. You got you to get down on their level and you got you to gotta talk at their level, man. They just don't get everything you get, right? They don't understand it all. And the, the distance between a parent and a child um, is, is pretty great, but the distance between us and God, like what he understands, what his thoughts are about, what's going on in his mind, is infinite in comparison to the difference between us and our children. And so many times what God's doing here, you know, maybe, maybe on the other side of eternity, there will be more ways for God to explain to us the depth of his desire to bring comfort to his people. Maybe he'll be able to explain to it another way, but what he's doing right here is he's saying, you guys know what good moms are like? You know how a, how a good mom is going to comfort a child that's crying or struggling or having a hard time? That, that kind of warmth that that brings, uh, that's, that's what I want to do for you. And I will do that for you. It's pretty beautiful. Okay. Uh, that's Isaiah 66, verse 13. Isaiah 49, verse 15 says this. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. The first thing I want to point out is that this shows that mamas are often a good reference point for understanding God's love and compassion, 
but not a perfect one. Did you hear that? In the second part of the verse, he said, uh, first of all, he's kind of saying, like, can a mother forget the, the baby that she bore? Uh, and can she get to the place where she has no compassion on the child she bore? Then, then he says, though she may forget, I will not forget you. And so there's this, you see here God using an example, using a kind of a stereotypical example of the, the endless and fierce love of a mother. I mean, in, when, a, when a mother is good and godly, full of, of, of the love of God, she's not going to forget her child. She's not going to, the well of her compassion for her children is not going to run dry. There's a beautiful picture there painted for us. But God also in this acknowledges, though she may forget, I will not forget you. And so we're seeing here that understanding the way a mama loves, understanding the beauty of what mothers are and how God designed them is a good reference point for us to understand God's love and compassion, but it's, it's not a perfect one because sometimes mama's struggling with their own sin. Sometimes mama's, for various reasons, uh, they do uh, lack compassion for their children or they do fall short of um, sticking with them and, you know, for the long haul and, and, and being faithful in that incredible ministry um, of, of being a mom. And so that does happen. Um, but really, if, if God's doing that thing where he's getting down on our level and giving us examples to begin to try to relate to what it is he's telling us, here's how deep my compassion is for you. Here's how much I love you. Here's how much I'm willing to be with you. I will not forget you. Here's an example of how much I'm not going to forget you. You know, how many mamas you think are forgetting their kids? How many mamas lose compassion for their children? As fierce and, and loving as a mama is, that's, you're, if you get that, you're starting to understand how much my, my love, how deep my compassion is and my desire for you. Um, and even though human mamas don't live up to the perfection of God, um, they, they are still one of the best and most vibrant examples of that kind of love. And so uh, that's why I believe God was very comfortable here comparing himself in the way he's going to express this love and compassion to, to a mother. Praise God. Uh, Luke 15, 8 through 10. This is the parable of the lost coin. Um, it says, it, it references a woman. It doesn't say mother specifically, um, but uh, I, I think we still draw a principle here. So it says, or what woman, if she has 10 silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And so, did, did you hear what happened there? God here is talking about what happens in heaven, what happens in his heart over one sinner who repents, right? And so the sinner that repents is like the lost coin. This is a parable helping us understand better how God thinks about something. Well, God here is comfortable being compared to that woman who, if she loses the silver coin, is going to light a lamp and she's going to look until she finds it. She is going to persevere with fierce determination until that coin gets found. Now, I'm a guy and I'm a dad, and I know that if I had 10 silver coins and I lost one, I'll, I'll give it a good go. I'm going to give you probably a good 15, 20 minutes, but eventually I'm going to say, you know what, I got nine more coins, I'm going to bed, right? Like, I'm tired. <laughs> that 10th coin will pop up eventually, <laughs> you know what I mean? But, but a, a lot of times, a woman and or a mama, and God's, God's using this comparison, the when that woman is searching for that coin, man, she's not going to give up. She's going to keep going until she finds it. She's probably going to be more systematic and a bit more organized, too, and have a better chance of finding the coin. I don't think he means that. I'm just saying that's true uh, in general. So, but 
So what is he saying here? Really what he's saying here is, is beautifully, like that woman in that story, I'm going to persevere intently after those lost coins, those lost children, those ones whom I love. Um, and and it's even, there's even in there you see this attention to detail, right? That, that God's going to notice that one lost coin. And he's going to care about it, just like the woman in this story. And so I think that, that conveys some deep, beautiful things to us um, and, and should be an encouragement to us. Um, the next thing I'll give you is Hosea 13, verse 8. Here Jesus, or, I'm sorry, here God, through the prophet, says, I will encounter them like a bear robbed of her cubs, and I will tear open their chests. Um, so God here describes his wrath towards sin and the destruction that it brings like this. Compares himself to a mother bear robbed of her cubs. And if, if you've done any kind of hiking or camping or outdooring or you've watched Nat Geo and you've seen something about bears, they used to have this show like the, the 10 Most Dangerous Animals and it was like a countdown. Consistently, people that know what they're talking about will tell you, if there's an animal you don't want to encounter in the wild, it's a mother bear who has been robbed of her cubs and or you got in between the mother bear and her cubs. I mean, across the board, in all of nature, right? Guys that know what they're talking about will tell you, they would rather, my, my granddad is in the mountains of Montana all the time, and he will tell you, he would f much rather encounter a full-grown male grizzly bear. All that fierceness, he would absolutely rather end up nose-to-nose -nose with that than he would a mama bear who thinks he's about to mess with her cubs. They are fierce, and they are not playing games. They will scratch your eyes out, and you will lose. Okay? And God is very comfortable. Again, remember what we're doing. God is very comfortable here comparing himself to this mother cub. or I'm sorry, this mother bear being robbed of her cubs. And, and this, this, talks, this tells us something. Again, also, it teaches us something about the wrath of God. There are people who struggle very deeply with the idea of God's wrath at all. That God is wrathful. They either try to erase that. Oh, well, that's Old Testament God. He was mad. But then Jesus came and God got happy. Like, that's sometimes the way people see it. But God's wrath understood correctly. And this, God using this analogy helps us understand. God's wrath is against sin because God's love is focused upon his people. And sin leads to separation and destruction for his people. And so like a mama bear who you just messed with her cubs... God is coming after sin and all that would be harbingers of it and all that would bring separation between him and his people. He doesn't play. He's very angry about it. And, and if you think about it correctly, I'm very glad that my God gets as angry about sin and destruction and the forces of darkness trying to separate me from him as a mother bear does being robbed of her cubs. I'm glad God gets wrathful. And he uses the angriest, baddest animal example he can here in a mother bear who's upset about you messing with her cubs. That's not how, that's, that's not advisable in any situation. And so uh, we, we, we learn something beautiful here out of God describing himself through the lens of the way a mother reacts to something. And it's, you know, it, it's not just mother bears, I don't know, you know, some of you human mothers, <laughs> not that you're bears, but uh, if somebody messes with your kids, 
some of the scratching into their chest cavity and or ending their life language applies, right? Like, <laughs> some of you moms are, are the same way. Um, you might be the sweetest, I mean, you are like a Georgia peach any other time, but somebody gets in between you and your kids or somebody's giving your kids a hard time in an unfair way or whatever, uh, <clears throat> you know, it, it's not going to go good for whoever, whoever's doing that. And so, uh, again, we learn something about the love of God, something about the character of God, by him allowing the, the love and the, the, that protective nature of a mother to be reflected through the way he talked about himself here. Okay? Um, and I just I want to bring up to you again, I, I, I use it as a reference point at the beginning um, of the sermon just, just to, to put us at ease about even talking this way, but I want, to, I want to reference again the words of Jesus and talk about it a little bit more. Uh, it says, uh, this is Jesus, Luke 13, verses 34 and 35 again. He's, he's speaking of Jerusalem. He's lamenting over the unrepentant nature of the people of Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together, just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not have it. And so what do we see here? Is Jesus, Jesus is expressing... And I assume when Jesus said things, it was always the clearest way he could. I don't think he had missteps in his language. And so the clearest way Jesus could express how he was feeling about these unrepentant people was to say, I feel like a mother hen that wants to gather you up and, and keep you close underneath my wings. And so what do we learn about the character and nature of God and the way he thinks about us and wants to relate to us from these words from the master when he compares himself to a, a mother hen? Uh, <laughs> nothing else, right? So the first thing I think it shows us is that God wants us close, right? Some of us have a real hard time believing that God wants us to be close, right? Just because of our perception of God. Many times people think God, they think of all the old illustrations of Zeus sitting on a throne with lightning bolts just waiting for someone to mess up so he can zap them. Many of, many of us struggle with the, the constant call to intimacy and closeness from God to us. In Psalm 91, God said, I, I want you to literally dwell in my shadow. I want you so close to me, all I have to do is whisper and you can hear my voice. God wants you close to him. Now, for various reasons, oftentimes that, that isn't the case, right? For sometimes, you know, people are deceived or distracted and so they're out running around doing something else, not, not close to God as he desires, uh, sometimes people don't, they don't even believe that. They, they're not, they don't know to, to strive for closeness with God because they, they can't imagine that God would want to be close to them, right? They believe so many lies about themselves. They think, well, maybe God wants to be close to some people, but not to me. And dear friend, I just want to say to you, that's not true. You're not the exception to how God has talked about humankind and all the people he's made. You're not the one. You're not the one special, super, so nasty that God doesn't want you near, but he wants all the rest of humanity, whom he created for the very purpose of nearness to him, near him. He wants you near him. Can you say amen to that? Just tell me you're here with me. Amen. God wants you near him. I hope that matters to you. I hope that's good news, because it is. <laughs> it's pretty awesome. God wants you near. Um, and, and why does he want us close? Why, you know... A mother hen's wings aren't that big, and normally she's got a lot of chicks. And so when she, when she swoops them up, man, and draws them in, everyone's real close, real close to mama, real close to each other. Woo, what? That's in there too. So what does he want us close for? So, so he can love us, right? He wants us close so that he can love us, so he can care for us, right? God constantly, 
throughout his word, it said, I'm, I'm going I'm to provide for you, right? He gave us the example. He took the Israelites into the wilderness, man, to learn how to trust him and learn what he was like. He, he was a, a pillar of fire by night, a pillar of cloud by day. Daily, he sent manna down to fall for them so that they, they had the provision they need. He made water come out of a rock in the middle of the desert again and again, just, just giving them this idea, showing them over and over again, I'm not just talk. When I tell you I'm going to take care of you, I'm going to take care of you. Will you trust me? Will you come close to me? Will you let me love you? Will you let me care for you? And so that mother hen, when she draws those, those chicks close, she's, she wants to love them, she wants to care for them, and she wants to protect them. She wants to protect them. Um, I, I think the reality is a mom, a mom always sees her kids as kids. Any of you that are adults know this about your mom. Your mom, I don't care if you are 45 years old, you're still your mama's baby to some degree, right? And for some of you, that's annoying. But no matter how old they get, mamas still see their kids as their kids. And, and she still wants to watch out for them and guide them away from danger, steer them away from calamity, oftentimes self-caused. And if we can be honest... Not only do we need that from our moms, but we also need it from God. I know when I was a kid, I definitely needed somebody to steer me away from calamity and danger. Outside threats, of course, yes, there was those, but many of the threats were self-caused. Um, I, I, I can think of one example. I, I had a group of friends, and, and we were very dumb. And uh, so what we would do is when our, our parents, whoever it was, would, would make dinner and they would open up like vegetable cans or like pork and beans or whatever it was, some SpaghettiOs. They'd open up those cans. They'd throw the lids in the trash. We would sneak in there and take those lids and we would hoard them and get a big pile of them. And then we'd meet up together on the weekend and we would throw those lids at each other like ninja stars. We would pretend we were ninjas and we would run around the yard. We'd be up in trees behind stuff, just chucking vegetable can lids at each other. Razor sharp, right? So stupid. And, and I don't know if, <laughs> I don't know what you're imagining. I don't know if you're imagining nine and 10 year olds smart enough to like take the soup can lids, but then like before you throw them at your friend, go wash them off. No, 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 we didn't do that. So there was a great chance we were going to slit somebody's arm open and like a, like a rotten pork and bean was going to fall in the wound. It was all of that. The danger level was so high for severe injury and salmonella and everything and why did I tell you that? I told you that because I needed somebody to catch me doing that. What are you doing with those? Well, I'm going to go throw those at Luke. No, you're not. <laughs> and I needed someone to then apply discipline and teach me that what I was doing was very dumb. I needed protection. And here's what's interesting in that case. What I needed protection from was myself, my own ignorance, my own tendency and propensity for self-destructive behavior. I mean, it was self-destructive because my friends were throwing lids back, but in this case, I was also destroying other people. Um, and I honestly don't know how that didn't end up worse. Um, you know, if, if you need evidence of God's grace, just remember, when I was nine years old, I threw rusty, dirty soup can lids at my friends, and they threw them at me, and I'm here. So God's real, y'all. You know what I mean? And he's merciful, okay? Jesus, help us. Um, and I have a son, so pray for me. Okay, because that I see that imaginative look in his eye already. Um, I needed someone to tell me that's dumb. I needed someone to love me and want to protect me. 
um, and do what was necessary to, to step in and help me. And so, and the reality is that never really changes, guys. I know the relationship with our mothers changes as we grow and mature, but the picture of the way, think about this, the way a mom, you know, and, and moms have that stereotypical um, reputation, right? I used to, um, actually, me and, me and my mother-in-law, we used to own some rental properties together, and, and sometimes, like, if, if there was a window, you know, like, up from the floor, if there was a window that was anything shorter than, you know, I, I mean, three feet, if there was any chance in any universe, under any circumstance, a child could wiggle their way out of that window, she forced me always to take a ladder and go up and on the outside and, like, put a big metal mesh thing up there because some kid might. And I'm like, you know, I'm using a measuring tape. I'm like, Mom, this is not going to happen. Unless this kid has superpowers, he's knocking out this window. She's like, put the, put the gate up there, all right? Because that's, the, the, that's how this is going to go down. We're going to go safe, right? And so moms have this tendency of, you know, sometimes we think of it as overprotection, but really what it is, is it's a beautiful expression of love. And, and God, we need that, guys. We need to understand about ourselves. We need that. We need someone looking out for us like that. And what God's expressing through many of these examples is the way a mom is like that, the way a good mom is looking out for not only her kids, but other people's kids, God's looking out for us like that. And it doesn't matter how old you get. You need somebody that's got your back like that, that is willing to love you like that. And uh, that's part of how God's love, compassion, character, and nature is reflected in a good, godly mama. God's compassion, love, and mercy is sometimes best exemplified by a good mom, but his, his compassion, love, and mercy are infinitely greater than the best mom. Can I say that again? God's compassion, love, and mercy is sometimes best exemplified by a good mom, but all of those character traits in God are infinitely greater than the best mom. And I know there's a big contest on Facebook today about whose mom is the best. You, I know, your mom, I'm sure your mom is the best. God's love, compassion, care, all the attributes that make you admire your mama and love your mama all those things, God has those infinitely more, and he directs those towards you. You are the object of those. I, I hope that means something to you. That's real, real precious, man. It's good. Praise God. God gave us these examples. There, there are more um, in the Bible where he's Willing to, willing to refer to himself in such a way that helps us better understand who he is and, and how he operates. There's many examples throughout the scripture. I, I believe that the, the, the simple, beautiful truth of the gospel is probably the best evidence that all of the best attributes of the best mom are found in God to an infinite degree. When we think about the, the truth of the gospel, the fact that every single one of us, through sin, have betrayed God to to a degree that can't really be comprehended, right? Because God was perfect towards us, set everything up for us, only has good intentions for us, and what we, what we did in return was spit in his face, turn our back on him, and rebelled against him. And it's not just our first parents in the garden. The Bible's clear. There, there is not one righteous person. It, and just to make sure you know, it says, no, not one. <laughs> not one of us is without sin. The Bible says in Romans that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. And so God's love toward us is, is the magnifying glass of his incredible compassion, love, and mercy is, is never clearer than when we look at the details of the beautiful truth of the gospel. Our, 
Our sin and our rebellion is so great it can't be described. And his love and faithfulness, mercy, compassion, and willing to stick, willingness to stick with us is equally as big. He's with us, and he's with us to the end. He proved it because he sent Jesus, just like he said he would, to come and live an absolutely perfect life, a life that we couldn't, and then to step in and die the death that absolutely every one of us should have. You see, there are people that believe because it's probably the most common way God is described in the way that he relates to people. See, a lot of people don't go to God's word, which is what he gave us as as the, the, the only way revealed from himself to understand how he deals with things. There are these mixed-in lies and deceptions. People believe variants of the gospel. They believe that, well, you know, God is, God is good and he expects us to be good, and so if we're fairly good, or not as bad as someone else I know at least, then surely one day when I approach God in heaven, he'll, he'll accept me. There's a lot of worse people than me. I I, I try my best. I do really hard. There's, there's all these variants of that. And every, every single thing, every single scenario where what you do or don't do determines whether or not God's going to receive you, accept you, love you, every single one of those is a deception. Every single one of those is a, a, an attempt from the enemy to pull people away from this beautiful truth. And the first part might not feel beautiful to you or it might not seem beautiful, but just think about it. None of us, zero, nobody, deserves the love, compassion, mercy, or any of the beautiful things God described that I've read to you today that can be compared to a mother. None of us deserve that from him. None of us deserve his acceptance. None of us deserve his mercy. None of us deserve salvation. Every single one of us, what we've earned for ourselves is separation from God eternally uh, because of sin. However, the Bible is clear, though that is what we've earned, though that is what we've done, God has also done something. God has spoken to the situation. God brought a remedy to the problem that we caused. That remedy was Christ. From the very time our first parents sinned in the garden, from that point on, God began to prophesy what he was going to do. He told the serpent, yeah, you might bruise his heel, but there's one coming that's going to crush your head. And all through the rest of the scriptures, man, if you know how to look, I was, I was riding with Lucy this week in my truck, and, and, and I, I know this sounds like a terrible dad preacher move, but just let me finish the story. I, I put on, um, last week's sermon had posted online, so I put it on. I said, all right, Lucy, this is daddy teaching the Bible, so here's what I want you to do. Listen, and if you have a question, stop me. And it was so fun because she, she stopped me several times. What's this mean? What's that mean? Whatever. And at the end, she said, dad, that was really cool. I liked listening to you teach the Bible. So I wasn't torturing her, okay? So all of you that are feeling sorry for her, all right, we were having a good time. Uh, and she enjoyed it, or at least she was willing to fib to me and tell me she enjoyed it. So either way, I'm, I'm not sure. She doesn't normally lie, so I think she did. But anyways, it was cool because in the midst of that, somehow the idea of foreshadowing came up. And so I got to explain to her, what, is, what does that mean? And so I, I took her through some Old Testament Bible stories, and I said, so what foreshadowing means is that something happen, is happening that's pointing to something in the future. And it was cool because she started to get it. She was starting to explain it to me back. And, and that's, that's the beauty of the Old Testament. That's what so many times people miss, man. People think the Bible is, is this fragmented grouping of stories with some moral outcomes and moral implications. And if we would if, you know, re, know all the stories and know the moral of each story, then you, know, you can live a pretty good life, man. That is not what the Bible is. 
The Bible is 66 books written by 40 different authors over the span of 1,500 years or so in several different languages, and it is telling one very cohesive and coherent story that God made mankind, mankind sinned against him, and that then God kicked into gear this beautiful plan of redemption that was culminated in the coming of Christ Jesus to live a perfect life, die in our place for our sins, and then rise from the grave. And here's what it comes down to, friends. Can you believe that? Will you believe you are completely unworthy in and of yourself of relationship with God that that Jesus earned and performed exactly what we should have? He earned righteousness, actually, and then sacrificed himself in our place so that he could give us then his righteousness. That's what the Bible says. If by faith we will trust in what Jesus did, his righteousness that he earned, we didn't earn it, his righteousness can be given to us. Grace is extended to us. Mercy that we do not deserve. God is willing, if we are willing to trust in Jesus, to let us be viewed by him in the same way that Jesus is. To, to give the, the, the term is imputed. that we, we are given his righteousness, righteousness we don't deserve. Friends, there is, that, is, that is the pinnacle, the apex, that is the crescendo and, and the ultimate culmination of, of understanding how great and wide and deep and beautiful the love of God is, the compassion of God is, the mercy of God is. It's in that beautiful jewel of the gospel. The gospel, if, if ever we for a second were to doubt that, that the love of God is infinitely far and beyond the love of even the best mother, we need only to set our gaze upon the beauty of the cross and to remember again how long-suffering, merciful, compassionate, and wonderful our God has been to us. Our God does love us. He is loving. He is merciful beyond compare. He is good in all that he does, and he is worthy of our worship. I'm thankful to God for the gospel. I'm thankful for mamas and how they reflect the nature of the beauty, the compassion of our God. Praise the Lord. May we be a people who never stop seeking to understand more the incredible nature of our Creator. May we receive God's love and compassion instead of running from it. And may we value our earthly mothers, both by blood and by the gospel, for the beautiful reflection they are of our God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now in the name of Jesus. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that we were able to gather today and celebrate the beautiful gift you gave us in moms. I thank you, God, that you have uh, put special anointing on mothers, uh, especially those mothers that are willing to serve you and willing to look to you as their example. Um, They have this this anointing, this special gifting for compassion and mercy and, and to love and and to, to protect and, and draw close their children. I thank you, God, that uh, as we studied the verses today, journeyed together through this, that we've seen uh, that you have all of those tendencies in, in an infinite amount. Um, I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you uh, exhibited this kind of compassion and love towards Peter's mother-in-law. I thank you, Lord, as you healed her with no fanfare, no need for public applause Uh, You displayed to us the the pure motive and the beautiful love and compassion uh, 
that the God of the universe operates in. I think that he cares about our little things. She was sick, and that was a fever, and that was a difficult situation, but in the grand scheme of all that's going on in the entirety of the earth, that's a small detail, and yet, Lord Jesus, you were willing to attend to it and exert power towards it and bring healing and help and restoration. God, may we understand what these things mean for us. May we believe these things with our whole heart, and may we understand how incredible the way you relate to us really is. May we be ever more impassioned towards you. May our love for you only grow as we understand more and more, as we seek with passion to understand who you are, what you do, why you do it. God, may we have a thirst, a a hunger, a drive to know you more, every aspect possible. I thank you, Lord, that your word, your character, your gospel, that these are never-ending wells, that we can draw sweet and, and, and refreshing water from forever, and we will never dry them out. I thank you. There's always more, deeper to go in you. I thank you, Lord. There's no excuse for boredom for those of us that follow you. I thank you. We have a beautiful task and an incredible opportunity for all of our lives to pursue you, and I thank you. You've promised, God, when we'll draw near to you, you'll draw near to us. Father, we, we confess that we need you, We need you like a mother hen sometimes to draw us close because we want to run around and act a fool. Half the times, Lord, we're doing things that's destroying ourselves and destroying others. Lord, we, we just submit to your desire to draw us in close to you, to take care of us, to love us, to protect us because we need it. We don't have it all figured out. We humbly submit to your desire, Lord, and we want to be close to you. So, Lord, please help us. We ask you to remove every barrier that would stop that from happening. Show us what it is, God that holds us back and away from that kind of beautiful and intimate closeness with you. Thank you that you want it. Lord, we say we want it too. And we ask God that by your will it would be done, by the power of your spirit, for the glory of your name, and for the good of your people. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.